And we're live. Welcome to another episode of Not in the Limited History Podcast. My name is Jacob, and this is going to be the fourth installment of the Wild Canal Campaign. Uh, if you haven't heard the first three episodes, go ahead and check them out. With me today again is Liam. How goes it? Goes well, Jacob. How are you doing? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm here. Uh, right, I, lo- I uh, lost my only pair of glasses, so I'm using a very old, very scratched pair of prescription glasses right now. It's kind of a little bit like what I imagined, like trying to look through like a used meth pipe would be like, you know. Oh boy! So uh, yeah, uh, perfect. Yeah, I'm uh, uh, I'm I'm struggling a little bit, but you know, I'll, I'll make I'll make it through. You know, new new pair is in the is in the works should be coming in shortly. But uh, you ready to talk about some more uh, Marines, Japanese dying in the jungle? Oh, absolutely. I got lost in the jungle uh, this past weekend, uh, the concrete jungle of New York City, to be exact, uh, but just in preparation for this pod. Uh, so you're really just like, you know, method acting, you know, it's really preparing for the role, you know? Yeah, exactly. Just uh, sure. a whole maze and mess of its own up there. I'm sure the ra- the rats are probably as big as the rats the wrong wall canal, I'm sure. Shockingly, did not see any rats this time. <laughs> really? I, uh, yeah, I, I mainly stayed out of the subway, just because... Uh, I like walking. Uh, I like walkable cities, and I, I didn't really have to travel too much distance while in New York this weekend. That's good to hear. See, I remember yeah. like going. I haven't been to. I mean, I've only been to New York once uh, a long time ago, back when I was like sixteen. But I remember going to DC once, like on a class field trip back in college, and the rats there are just really fucking terrible. Like I remember, like walk. We like walked in the park and everything at night. And you'd be walking by the trash cans. You'd be a good like tippy with the trash cans, the rats could hear you, and you'd just see them all scurrying away from the trash cans, like immediately. Like it was just gross. The the Washington D.C. rats are scarier, in my opinion, because New yeah. York City is like big, cramped city, like stretches to the sky, dirty, grimy. It, it kind of fits with the yeah. Of course, there are rats here. Washington D.C. has that kind of like much more pristine aesthetic that like comes with being the nation's capital like it's gotta look clean if it's like as dumpy as new york that's mm-hmm. not gonna be very impressive on the international stage so like yeah you're like you're saying at nighttime just like a whole different like city comes out like yeah you got your your normal humans but in the quieter parts of town's like oh dear god the rats yeah i mean it's it's very appropriate to think about the fact that you know our our, our, you know, our, the, the seat of our government is like really nice and shiny on the outside, and there's just all these fucking rats everywhere. You know, it's it's pretty uh, it's pretty on point. I, I think for the yeah, I, I for think the state it, of our it government, really kind know. of speaks to what's you know our current shape of government is. <laughs> now Secret it's not rats. as bad. There's fucking rats everywhere, man. Like it, it's, it's not as bad though, but as the Chicago rats, like they've actually. I, I remember reading an article where they've actually uh, the rat problem there has gone so bad they basically enlisted feral cats. To help them out, like they would build these like outside shelters and everything for these cats. You know, these are cats that like you know they're basically pretty much like so frail to the point where like nobody's ever gonna be able to adopt them. You know, so it's actually a good you know thing for the cats because you know it gives them like a nice you know little warm you know like little structure in the winter they can kind of curl up. And in the meantime, they just are t- tearing up these rat populations. So, Jesus. Well, hey, if it's if it works, it works. Support, exactly. Support the natural cycle of life. <laughs> Absolutely. Fuck up those rats. But uh, <laughs> So, anyways, so, we're, uh, last we left off, uh, the Marines had just endured one hell of a bombardment at Harrison Field, and uh, they'd also, there'd been some actions along the Botanical as well, 
And we're going to go ahead, and this is kind of part of the lead-up to the next big battle, which would be for Henderson Field, which we're going to talk about in just a second. So at this point, where are the Japanese in their planning? So we're going to talk a little bit about that. So at this point, the Imperial Army uh, commanders agreed that their newest offensive needed to target Henderson Field and American artillery positions, but they disagreed on where the axes of attack should be. So Colonel Matsumoto of the 2nd Division pushed the coastal area, while Colonel uh, Tsugi of the 17th Army advocated for inland push. So the plan started out relatively simple, uh, but complexity was added when they assigned Coley Point, which is eight miles east of Lunga, into their plan. So this is kind of like a classic example of, do you, do you know the term mission creep? Uh, I do not. So it's basically the idea that like a plan is going to start out really simple, but then things just kind of over time, things just get added on to it continually to the point to where it kind of becomes just like completely unrecognizable, you know, to like the point where it's, it just doesn't like, you know, it hardly makes sense. It doesn't look like the original plan at all, you know, yeah, kind of like, gets you know, over bloated. Yeah. Yeah. Like you could really kind of say this applies to think to, you know, the, um, the war in Afghanistan, it started out with like, oh, we just need to go get Osama bin Laden. And it's like, oh, no, we're going to overthrow the, we're going to throw for the Taliban and we're going to solve democracy. And it's like, oh, we got to do this. We got to do that. We got to make sure these villages, you know, get funds and support and all this stuff. And then so like, you know, 20 years go by and like it's come something just totally fucking different. Yeah, 20 uh, years go by and then everybody realizes, oh, wait, we've been in a war for 20 years that <laughs> do we really have a reason to be fighting this? Yeah, like like literally, sons are that were born, you know, before nine eleven are going to war, you know, like that, you know, and they're you know in the same wars their dads are, or the same war that their dads are going into, and exactly, it's just it's absurd. And then we uh we twenty years and trillions of dollars down the great down the uh, drain to replace the Taliban with the Taliban. So it, uh, we did worked it, guys. Out really... <laughs> Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished, right? Exactly, but uh. So, uh, moreover, uh, yet again, the Japanese are starting to underest- or are underestimating the number of Marines on the island. So at this point, the Japanese estimated there were about 10,000 Marines, when in reality it was close to about 23,000 on Canal, another 4,000 on nearby Tulagi. So, but despite this underestimation, the Japanese really weren't super confident at this point. Uh, they had very few artillery guns, they were very scarce on ammo for them. And the loss of their position along the Tanakal meant that it would be much harder to advance the airfield. So during the previous campaigns, the Marines went ahead and um, captured their positions along the Tanakal River. And then so that meant that things were going to be a bit harder for them if they wanted to go ahead and get to Henderson. So uh, on October 15th, the Japanese observed the American positions from the top of Mount Austin, uh, the highest point on Guadalcanal. And they determined the airfield was only lightly defended in the south. So... Uh, with this information, a plan started to form. So the main body, Colonel General Nasu, would attack the airfield from the south. On the detachment under, under uh, Colonel Sumiyoshi would serve as a distraction by attacking uh, from the east around Lunga. So the two elements began their march on October 16th and 18th, respectively, and the day of the attack was set to October 22nd. So at this point, though, as the Japanese are marching towards the airfield, this is about a 30-mile march. They're going uh, from their initial, uh, from Coley Point, I'm sorry, not Coley Point, from the from the early embarkment, embarkment point to Henderson Field. And uh, they're starting to grow kind of a bit more confident over the day, or, you know, day by day, because at this point, the Marines haven't yet detected them. So as they got close to the airfield, the general staff even began discussing how to handle the American surrender uh, from the airfield. So they're 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 starting to get there. They're starting to starting to feel themselves a little bit as they're you know, slugging through the getting a little here. cocky and, and counting a their, cocky, their yeah. before they hatch. Yeah, 
Yeah, like, I'm like, guys, like, this isn't Singapore, you know? Like, you know, at this point, the Japanese have, you know, endured some pretty stinging defeats by the Americans. I mean, the the Ishiki's entire detachment was wiped out at, you know, Battle of Tenaru, and they lost a huge amount of men at Edson's Ridge. So they really shouldn't be this confident, I mean, like, at, at this point, I would think. But, you know, that's just, you know, that's just arrogance, but, I think, on, on their yeah, part. Yeah, but to, to some point, are these also, like, fresh troops? Are these, like, new people that came in on the, the Tokyo Express, that convoy that made it? So are I mean, these, like, new commanding officers that, like, don't really have an understanding that they got torn up before and are just walking themselves into a meat grinder? I mean, a few of them are new. I don't remember uh, reading from the book the actual makeup of who was new and who was not. Some of the soldiers, of course, are going to be new coming from the Tokyo Express, but there's also definitely going to be some some hardened veterans that are going to be in there. And you would think those would probably be the, some of the guys that, you know, are like the new guys that are probably coming in like, you know, yeah, we're going to you know, charge with bayonets and swords draw and these Americans are going to flee in terror. And they're like, guys, it's it's, it's not going to be like that. <laughs> they have machine guns and tanks. No. Yeah. And and what gets me is those fucking those three seven millimeter like you know anti tank guns that are shooting canister shot like man that's some fucking gnarly shit there I would not want to be caught in the crossfire of those and we'll see some more of that in a little bit here but uh, so uh, at this point like I mentioned the advance is going largely undetected by the Marines uh, who at this point were convinced of an attack from the east instead. So we're going to talk a little bit about the American positions right before this battle. So the Americans were positioned as follows. So the 164th, which we talked about was all National Guard guys, was positioned in the easternmost sector. While well, 7th Marines were on Edson's Ridge towards the west of Lunga. And the 1st and 5th Marines held the line beyond Lunga. And the 3rd Battalion, the 2nd Marines, and the 1st Tank Battalion were in reserve. So and I should also mention as well that uh testy polar is coming in this battle testy polar you know is a marine legend you know he was he's been in guadalcanal ever since the seventh marines uh, arrived earlier like later girl to fight in korea he had a very storied you know career i mean every marine knows about testy polar you know so and he's commanding um, a smaller amount of men so he's really much stretched thin so kind of the kind of defense he's offering here is kind of using a cordon defense He's kind of taking some lessons from Edson's Ridge, where Edson also didn't have a lot of men and was told to command a pretty large area. So it's kind of got, you know, instead of there being kind of like a connected, you know, one long connected line, it's more like a series of strong points where he's got machine gun nests and, uh, you know, and, you know, anti-tank guns, that sort of thing, kind of just interspersed throughout the area, places where he thinks the Japanese are going to attack. So... Uh, as the uh, Japanese are marching, they encounter delays, march through the jungle. Shocker, I know. And those things didn't really kick it off until the 23rd. Uh, so now we're going into October 23rd in the battle. So uh, be- before the battle really kicked off the infantry, uh, the Japanese launched an air raid on Guadalcanal, and the Cactus Air Force responded in kind. So Now, interestingly enough, at this point, the commander of the American aviators, a guy named uh, Lieutenant Colonel Buller, actually instructed the Wildcat pilots, so quote, when you see zeros, dogfight them. So now we talked about earlier in the last episode that that really wasn't the strategy from the American aviators at this point. I mean, their their aircraft were very well armored, but they weren't really all that maneuverable. So they're often told just to kind of like ambush the Japanese from above. But at this point, the Japanese are actually starting to kind of, you know, there's been so many air battles uh, over Guadalcanal and especially the naval battles as well that they're starting to lose a lot of their really skilled aviators. I mean, and aviators are a, uh, a very scarce resource for the Japanese. I mean, throughout much of the war, uh, they weren't to the very beginning, but it takes a long time to train, like, a skilled pilot. 
especially back then. I mean, and, and the Japanese um, you know, system for training the pilots was known to be somewhat more rigorous than most. Uh, it, would, it wouldn't stay that way, though. <laughs> Kamikaze. But uh, so they, they, yeah. they, they, stopped, they stopped teaching them how to land uh, later on in the war. But uh, we're, we're, not, we're not at that point yet. Or, um, earlier in the war, though, they would do things that, like, though all the pilots, like, you would never, ever actually have to do. Like, they would teach them, like, sword fighting and stuff. And just, like, when are you possibly going to use this? You know, but like, I don't know, maybe you just jump out of a plane, like fucking Battlefield 4 and like stab a guy with your katana. I don't know. But, um, and then so like, so for that reason, because it was so rigorous, uh, it took a long time to train their pilots. And so they're starting to run short on skilled pilots, which means that the, and the Americans have caught on to this. So like, hey guys, you can go ahead and dogfight them now because, you know, odds are you're going to have more combat experience under your belt. You could probably take them. So. If one of no. them lands, then avoid that guy. <laughs> avoid that everybody guy. else, if they if they look like they don't know how to land, just take them down. Yeah, I mean it's it's like the uh, during the Falklands War, you know, there's like um there's you know there's um which I should do an episode on that at some point, but like there's accounts though of like you know the Argentinian pilots were so unskilled compared to the British that they wouldn't know to turn when they were being shot at. <laughs> so I just, I'm like, are these are these guys anything like that? Where you're just like. Hmm, these bullets are just coming in. Like, I should just keep on going my course, you know? Like, just, like and, yet, and yet those unskilled quote-unquote pilots still sank a British uh, cruiser, might I add. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very, yeah, very true that with the Falcons War, yeah, definitely. But um, I don't know where that speaks to that those one or two pilots' competence or British incompetence, probably a mix of both. It's, but, uh, it's, it's a mix of both. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. Well, well, I'll have to have you on then for a Falklands episode because that that seems like an interesting war to cover. Love to be on. I love that war. Uh, that's yeah. a bit morbid to say, but it's it's a good little historical blip. Just like, hey, remember that time Britain fought a war eight thousand miles from its its home country over tiny lands in the South Atlantic that hey, kind of looked like Britain. Yeah, I mean, the the only strategic value they had was that they were close to Argentina. Like, that was about it. Like, so if you're at war with Argentina and you had a lot of soldiers there, it was a good thing. But otherwise, it's just useless. No natural resources, anything else. But, uh, so, uh, speaking of islands with uh, little to no strategic value, uh, <laughs> uh, so when Kawaguchi discovered that the American position he, he was assigned to was stronger than he originally thought, he tried to get the plans for the attack changed. Uh, so this immediately just ignited a day of bickering. So the generals are all fighting with each other. Uh, we stalled the attack until the 24th, you know, because generals are generals. And uh, the planes and ended up not changing. So that was just a complete waste of time. So, you know. Uh, so so fun stuff coming from the Japanese end at this point. You gotta love it when generals just fight. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Just constant squabbling. It doesn't even matter if it's between the army and the navy. It's now just between the army and the army. You gotta love it in fighting. Sign up any good military. Oh, for for sure, absolutely. So, uh, so on this brings us then to October twenty fourth. So at dusk, the Japanese artillery uh, fire began to rain down the American positions on the Botanical. So as a Type eighty seven tanks rumbled towards the American lines, the first tank was immediately knocked out by a three seven moving into tank gun. Another one came forward to take its place, and it was crushed in an American machine gun nest. And then it got stuck on a stump in the process, which I don't know why this is funny to me. You just like you think of like these like 
you know, badass looking like Japanese tanks like going to the jungle, crush the machine gun nest, and then get stuck on a fucking stump. You know, <laughs> just like, just fucking ah, like I, I, I love it. And then uh, so it, and it's it, it's a bit anime esque almost. Just this awesome dramatic scene: tank enters, crushes the enemy very comically, then runs into a tree, gets stuck. Uh, yeah, just the height of military warfare. Oh, ab- absolutely! This this is like this is this is peak peak military warfare. Absolutely here. So then, uh, Private Joseph uh, Dr. Champagne disabled it by placing a grenade in its tracks, and it was then destroyed by half-track mounting a 75 millimeter gun. So this tank just got fucked up. It's got stuck on a stump. Its tracks get destroyed by just some random private with a grenade, and then it just gets nailed by a fucking 75 millimeter gun. Which the 75 millimeter gun is what the Shermans used. So that's that's a big fucking gun. And then uh, so anti-tank guns then destroyed two other Type 95s in the first wave, then five more in the second wave. So the Japanese tanks uh, in this wave of attacks suffered tremendously. So out of 44 men of the first tank company, just to get an example, only 17 would survive the battle. So, which gives you an idea. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and the Japanese were not known for fielding very effective tanks. Uh, And there's a reason that, you know, the the American uh, Grant tank, or also known as the Lee tank, if it had. So there's the Grant tank and the Lee tank. The only difference is that the the lead tank had an extra turret for machine gun up top. There's this very weird looking kind of, I don't know if you've ever seen it before, but it's a very weird kind of wonky looking tank where normally the big gun is placed in the turret, but with the grants, they decided to place the big gun like in the hole instead. And then they had oh. a turret with like a smaller gun as well, which made it really tall. And then, um, I mean, it was used in, to decent effect in North Africa until it ran some of the really bad German tanks. And it was uh, phased out by the Sherman. But because the Japanese tanks were generally so shitty, it actually continued to be used throughout the Pacific War when it was basically obsolete in Europe. So that should kind of give you an idea about just how shitty the Japanese tanks were for the most part. Sir, we have a hundred of these tanks that turn out to be crap against the Germans. Well, the Japanese tanks keep rolling on the tree stumps, and those things have guns, so <laughs> send them to the Pacific. <laughs> Here we go. The Pacific guys can use them. Those, those tanks are shit. They'll be all right. But, uh, so artillery and mortar fire from the Marines nearly obliterated the first attack within hours. So sending down 6,000 shells in just one hour alone. And they suffered, the Marines only suffered light casualties. So at this point, so just raining hell down the Japanese. So meanwhile, the Sendai divisions uh, started heading towards the southern portion of Hezen Field. And the Lieutenant Colonel Chessie Polar had a 700-man force stretched along a 2,500-yard white gap in the regimental front, which is exactly where the Japanese are heading. So the Japanese have found this weak spot in the American line, and they're just steamrolling right towards it. So, uh, lucky for Polar, the Japanese attack on his lines was largely disorganized and chaotic due to their tiring jungle march, uh, along with their rainy downpour that came right before the attack. So, like you know, like I said, you know, they've just marched 30 miles to the jungle, there's been a rainy downpour, so these guys are already exhausted, and they're being told to launch an attack. Uh, it, it usually does not go well when that happens. <laughs> so uh, the Japanese right wing at this point was so disorganized that it pretty much barely participated in the battle at all. Like it almost did not participate. And then uh, in contrast, the left wing immediately landed in the thick of it, attacking Colonel Polar's lines with ferocity. So the Japanese tried to press the American machine gun plates before the artillery started raining down. So 
Initially, they try to sneak through the tall grass in order to get as close as possible to the American lines before attacking. But some of the fatigued soldiers just began standing up and shouting war cries before the order was given. So the Marines just started opening up with their mortars and machine guns. So you've just got these delirious Japanese soldiers that have just completed this brutal, like, 30-mile march to the jungle, been through, like, a heavy downpour. And, like, I just imagine, it's like a cartoon sketch where, like, the, you know, the officers, like, like sneak it through the hall grass and everything, you know, like, all, like, secret swirl. And the officers are like, okay, man, like, we're almost there. If we just wait for my... And then just guys gets up, like, ah, bonsai! He just gets immediately just, like, fucking pegged, you know, by, like, a machine gun. And then the Americans just start opening up and just like, wait, wait, guys! Like, just imagine that, like, tension you've you've marched for 30 miles now you're being told okay you have to sneak through the tall grass in order to you know wipe out the americans just be quiet keep crawling we'll all we'll be there you have to be so focused so attentive on that and if the pressure is too much especially after a brutal march like that you you might just want it to be over with just you know ah screw it let's go (laughs) I mean, yeah, that that is a good point, too. I mean, who knows how many of those soldiers were just like, fuck it, I can't take it. Let's just fucking start this shit. Like, either I'm going to die or I'm going to live. You know, like, just let's fucking get this shit over with. So, uh, as the Americans opened up on the Japanese, they wiped out pretty much the entire Japanese company within about five minutes. So, this is the, uh, also, there's also the engagement where a Private John Bassalone uh, won his Medal of Honor. So, at this point, uh, Bassalone had previously... Uh, cleared out some Japanese bodies that were kind of, you know, blocking some of the firing emplacements there to kind of give them machine guns a wide field of fire. And then as Japanese started attacking again, he went ahead and grabbed a 1917 30 caliber machine gun. It was a water cool machine gun. So he grabbed it off of its tripod. He cradled it in his arms, which this is, you know, this machine gun's been firing hundreds of rounds. So it's fucking hot as hell, the barrel is. And then so he picks it up off of its tripod, cradles on his arms, and just opens up on the Japanese and starts starts pretty much spraying and praying down their lines. And yeah, he kills a large number of them. And this this is really what you know got him his Medal of Honor. And I believe he was the first Marine to win the Medal of Honor. He, I, I might have to fact check yet. There might have been a Marine in World War One that may have done it, but I could have sworn he was the first Marine to do it. But uh, but so that man is insane, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, it's it's if you watch the Pacific, it's a pretty they they portray it pretty good, uh, like the HBO series. So like he goes in like you know there's all of these Japanese bodies just block, blocking the machine gun placements, and he just runs up there and starts like clearing them all off. And of course, comes in a machine gun fire. He's like, here you go, you got to clear through the fire now. And then the Japanese start attacking, and he has to move the machine gun, and that's when he picks it up. And it's just it's it's fucking nuts that he that he managed to do that and survive. But um. He would later, he would actually, um, he became a big USO guy. Like he performed a lot of USO, you know, like actions and everything, you know, like trying to get war bonds. But then he would, um, you know, go back as a, um, as a drill sergeant and would uh, lead some of the Marines and at a, on Iwo Jima, but then he was, uh, killed during that battle. Mm. So, um, but I think he, I think his wife was only, he and his wife were only married for like a month. Like it's, it's pretty sad. Just imagine <laughs> surviving the hell of Guadalcanal. Only to be told, you're going to a, a small island that we've supposedly bombed for 30 days called Iwo Jima. Uh, good luck. Have fun. Uh, it should be very easy. Do not I really worry hope it doesn't it. have any caves. Wouldn't that just suck if it had caves? W- wouldn't it be terrible if the Japanese had dug miles of tunnels 
that would, that would just be bad. Because they haven't done that before, right? Like at, like a yeah. Peleliu or Saipan or any of those other places, Okinawa. But yeah. um, it's never been done. Yeah, it's it's interesting too because I remember reading in my in my military history class where I had a I had a class it was a like history of amphibious warfare. I might have mentioned it before. I don't know. But uh, I, I read a, um, a read historical essay that was talking about how, you know, kind of Iwo Jima has kind of become almost mythologized and kind of the American zeitgeist, especially when it comes to the U.S. Marine Corps. But there's, you know, there's this scholar who was kind of reexamining it and he was kind of talking about it. I was like, did Iwo Jima really need to happen? Like, if you look at it, you know, like, compa- like compared to the Battle of Okinawa and like, you know, you know, if we had just maybe focused more efforts on there, like we still could have bombed Japan from Okinawa and would have had this roughly the same impact. So it was like, did we really need to like, you know, go to UO and then, you know, lose all these men and everything. It was kind of interesting the way, cause you just kind of like the way you view it is just like this, oh, this great American victory. But it's like, you look back and you're like, did it really need to happen? You know, strategically, yeah, like, do, do we, but. Do we really need to go after this island? In island hopping? Yeah. I mean like Okinawa is, is bad enough, but like, you know, it's, you have the two of them together. It's, it's pretty awful. Exactly. But uh, so uh, soon, though, the American artillery started coming into play and killed pretty much any Japanese left standing on this part of the line. So we talked about that uh, that American artillery fire being absolutely instrumental in previous battles, and it's, it's coming into uh, play again. So uh, at this point as well, Poland immediately recognized the scale of the Japanese attack and just sent his reserves into his lines. So he knows this is not just a little fall rate. This is a full-on assault. So the Japanese 29th Infantry under Colonel Furuyama now went to the fray attacking with fixed bayonets. So again, the American artillery devastated their ranks, and by the time they reached the American lines, only some 200-odd men were standing. So uh, vicious fighting led uh, to those 200 men to start infiltrate some of the Marine positions, leading to vicious hand-to-hand fighting as Japanese fought with Marines in their foxholes. So this is kind of like the the only... We, we talked about how the American artillery... Will get so close to their own lines to keep the Japanese at bay, but you know when that happens, you either have like as a Japanese soldier, you have two choices: you can either retreat, or you can basically hug the American positions with the hope that they're not going to risk obliterating their own soldiers, which can lead to, of course, some of that really vicious close combat, hand-to-hand, you know, knives and spades and pistols and that that sort of fighting. But um. So by 4 a.m., though, the Japanese had not broken through, and then uh, General Nasu ordered Furuyama to withdraw. So by attack's end, the Japanese were so spread out and disorganized that Furuyama himself had immediate command of only 10 men. So he's only got 10 guys around him that he could actually marshal orders out to. Everybody else is just either... Yeah, everyone else is just either dead or just spread so far out to where, you know, they they just, they can't communicate. I mean, like, you, you also think about, you know, like, it's not like they have like you know, you know like uh, portable radios and like you know. I mean, yeah, they've got like some of the guys have combat telephones, but if that telephone gets blown up or that guy dies, you're fucked. But uh, you know, so I mean, it's, yeah, it's just it's just so insane for me to think like that level of decimation and confusion is is what they went into, where like that they get so broken up like that like you you normally think of world war ii where it's like yeah they'll they'll have like a like one coherent line that they'll be able to like fall upon or go order to retreat or something like that not no the americans like blew them up so badly that the commanding officer had 10 men in his line of sight at earshot and the rest of his 
200 odd men were so spread far out that he could not communicate with them. Yeah, I mean, I just just imagine the look on his face, like what it must have been like, okay, regiment, you know, like, is this it? Yep, that's it. That's all you got. That's all you know <laughs> that you have. Get 10 guys left standing with you. So that would end the attacks on the 24th. So now we're going into October 25th. So the next morning, an American SPD dive bomber took off and observed several Japanese cruisers and destroyers off the coast, which were blocking the Americans from receiving reinforcements. So... Moreover, earlier, the Japanese had erroneously reported that the airfield had been captured, causing some of the Japanese units to start pulling away. So there was a, this, this report came out and said, Americans captured. The Japanese were like, okay, cool. We don't need to go there. I just imagine if, if the guys on the ground had actually known like what it must have been like, no, guys, guys, no, come back, come back, guys. This is not taken. Like, Lord. But uh, so later on, the Eighth Fleet reserve, or, I'm sorry, received a report from the Army that the outcome of the battle was unknown and requested a bombardment of American positions. So that report has been, kind of been corrected, and they're saying, okay, it's still up in the air now at this point. So the Navy believed that a bombardment might actually tip the scales in favor of the, ar- of the Japanese Army. So throughout the rest of the day, the Japanese Air Force and Navy continued to bomb Henderson Field. And at 9 o'clock, the Japanese resumed their attack in earnest, launching wave after wave of soldiers at the Marine positions. So during this attack, the Japanese left wing was continually thrown back due to the superior Marine firepower. Uh, just as an example, on one stretch of jungle alone, 250 Japanese were killed by 37mm canister shots, so from those anti-tank guns. And the right wing uh, did not engage itself in combat, and uh, the reason for this was, uh, I'm going to quote the, uh, the book, the, the, my main source for this battle, uh, the reason is, uh, it's, it says, quote, for reasons that are hard to understand. <laughs> so even the author is like, I don't even know why the fuck they didn't actually go into the battle. Like, I don't know if they're just tired or spent or they're just too delirious from, like, the battle and marching the jungle. But they they just, they aren't in it today. So, and then, uh, yeah. So finally, though, the Japanese commander Oka entered the uh, battle along the east-west ridge. So at this point, now this is kind of another interesting little tidbit as well uh, along the American side. So uh, Platoon Sergeant Mitchell Page won the Medal of Honor when he ran through enemy fire to pick up a machine gun that had previously been disabled. And uh, along this attack here too, the Japanese were thrown back when the Marines counterattacked along with the rage of hand grenades. So uh, the Japanese finally halted the attack when they realized that it failed uh, because they, they simply had no more reserves to commit. They had no more men left in the attack. So... Uh, from the 26th to the 27th, the Marines repulsed what they had actually thought were more attacks, but in reality, they were just the Japanese attempting to recover their wounded. So, man, the Japanese... Oh. Yeah, the Japanese really just fucking can't catch a break here. They're, after they've even stopped their attack, they're just trying to get their wounded. I mean, I'm, I'm sure they... I mean, it's not like they probably... I don't know whether or not if they came out there with white flags. I mean, they probably couldn't communicate due to language barrier either way. But I, I'm sure whatever they had said, the Marines... I mean, they're... they're the um, the you know, the way of combat in the Pacific probably tells me the Marines would not have let just them retrieve their wounded, even if they politely asked. So they're, no, they're exactly. Wounded. When yeah, they're, they're... I when I think of Marine and war crime like that, uh, I think of that like that hunter uh, hunting a rabbit meme where it's like, oh, it's so cute. I can't kill it. Tosses a knife out into the open. It's got a weapon! <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. No, for sure. 
And then um, I, I, now I'm just thinking about that one Last of Us, like a meme where it's like the rabbit comes out and the girl's like, oh, that's the cutest fucking thing I've ever seen. It's going to get nailed by an arrow. It's just like, oh no. Like, but um, so now we're going to go ahead and talk about the aftermath of the battle. So uh, over the course of the battle, this is the bat- known as the Battle of Henderson's Field. So over the course of the battle, the Americans reported 90 killed and 192 wounded. Uh, in contrast, the Japanese reported losing about 2,000 men, but in reality, it's likely closer to 3,000 men. So yeah, there's, they, uh, you know, they gotta hide everything as, as much yeah. as they can. Yeah, they're they're, they're not gonna tell the guys. Just like with the uh, the Navy after Midway, they're not gonna actually tell the guys back home how bad it really was. Uh, so. Uh, the Japanese lack of success and the battle can be blamed on several factors. So, of course, there was the classic underestimation of difficult terrain. So they had that 30-mile trek through the jungle uh, to try to achieve surprise. But in reality, it led to lots of fatigue and supply shortages. Uh, there was also, of course, the lack of supplies. So there's actually a quote from a Japanese logistics officer about kind of the state of the Japanese supply system on Guadalcanal. So he said, uh, for every 10 units of resupply, 6% three were delivered and two survived for consumption. So we, we talked a little bit about last episode of just about how, you know, logistics can affect someone's morale. You know, if you're a soldier and you're not receiving your rations, or you're having to severely reduce your rations, you're not going to fight as well. You're not going to be physically, you know, as able. And then your, your morale, your mental state is just going to take a free fall. Whereas if your enemy is well fed and they're, they're well supplied, their, their morale is going to be much, much better. So, as someone who routinely sometimes has to work on an empty stomach, my morale is very low when I'm hungry. <laughs> yeah, no, nobody likes. I mean, I don't. I don't even like just let. Like, I can't even just late sit there and do nothing on an empty stomach. I can't imagine having just like you know trek through the jungle for thirty miles and then fight a massive battle all on an empty stomach. I I would just I would desert before we even got to the jungle. You know, I'd just be like, and, and it's not even like. You don't even have the morale that if, like, if you survive and win the battle, you'll get food. It, it, there's no promise of food if you go back to camp, or if, yeah, if I, like, if the battle doesn't go well, you're going back to starve. So there's no morale to to fight for. Yeah, I mean, basically, your best hope is that you manage to somehow win the battle, and then you manage to loot the marine stores, and then uh, what? Which even at that point, we talked about how you know, bad supplies the marines were a lot of times. I mean, even that wasn't guaranteed. Um, yeah. And, I like. I, I want to also do later on. I want to. I want to do a uh, a series about the battles of Impala and Kohima, which was actually Imperial Japan's biggest land defeat. It was these two battles fought in India, and one of the reasons that battle was largely fought was, or or one of the kind of the main objectives of that battle was the Japanese thought like, oh, we could just if we just capture the British supplies, that's how we're going to sustain your know, operation. I'm like, yeah, that works out great if you manage to capture the supplies. But if you don't, you don't have enough supplies with you, you're fucked. <laughs> don't worry, guys. If we just win, you guys will live. But, Sir, have you have you thought about the odd chance that we, you know, I don't mean to lower morale, that we might not win? No. Shoot this man. No. Why would you? Don't say that. Don't say that. That We're going to win. We're going to win. So, so somebody's somebody's um uh, somebody's got an appointment with that uh, Dr. Sapuku in a couple hours if you don't shut the fuck up. But uh so don't question are you questioning the Emperor as well? This sounds yes. like you're questioning the Emperor as well. You do remember the Emperor is God, right? And God can just smite you even if you're on Guadalcanal. So there's so so just so <laughs> you jot that one down, you know. But uh 
first of all, through God, all things are possible. So jot that one down. But, uh, <laughs> and then, so, uh, I also, uh, blame this, uh, the failing the battle also due to leadership failure. So one of the reasons that I talked about how the Japanese had received that faulty report that the airfield had been taken. And then, so they called off some of their soldiers during the attack. So it's speculated that the reason that they, uh, they misinterpreted this order was because the overall commander, uh, Murayama, was actually taken with malaria at this time. So he was extremely delirious. So, and just completely kind of in and out of cautiousness. So it's very possible that he received a report from his commanders on the ground and then kind of misinterpreted due to his delirious, you know, malaria-ridden state that they actually had taken the airfield when in reality, of course, they didn't. So so there's that. And uh, also just the the commanders themselves uh, had, had a lot of issues. Like the commander Nasu, that's a quote from him from uh, Murayama, is a quote, Nasu knew nothing but charge. So these, these these commanders are really overly aggressive and they're not concerned with their men's lives. And they're just kind of just, just you know, all they know is just attack, 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 which is great, but not so great when you're uh, going up against really uh, superior, fi- you know, entrenched positions that have superior firepower. So Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't really end well when if you keep charging and you, you don't learn from it and the enemy just has to keep doing the same thing over and over nothing will ever work for you. Yeah, if, if World War One taught us anything is that Bayonet does not beat Machine Gun and Artillery Barrage. So, but um, I think the statistics in like World War One, I, I think they did like a, comp- a compilement of like all the different like reasons people were in like military hospitals in World War One, and Bayonets was like less than a percentage, you know, and like, which is crazy if you think about like the military pretty much put their entire tactical strategy on the bayonet charge for large portion of the war. But um, anyways, so uh, what happened to Furuyama, that guy who had only 10 uh, men under his command at the very end of the battle? So uh, it's, it's, it's not a good fate. I'll, I'll, I'll say that much. So Furuyama wandered inside the Marine perimeter with his 10 men for several days, hiding the regimental colors until he ordered his band of men to escape on October 29th. So most of them were killed with only a few escaping. Uh, before he killed himself, he wrote in his diary, quote, we must not overlook firepower, and, quote, I'm going to return to my borrowed life today with little interest. So, which is is pretty, pretty depressing. I'm just like, oh, I'm, I'm going to wow. go ahead and keep... Man, that's that's a guy who's just fucking bad through it right there. Just like, oh, I'm going to kill myself. I don't even give a fuck. Like, he's, he's not even trying to, like, say, like, I'm, you know... I'm killing myself, like, you know, for the emperor, you know, for the glory of Japan. Just, like, I'm, exactly. I'm fucking done with this, <laughs> it, it I'm done with this like, shit. Fuck I'm you guys. Fuck this island. I hate it here. <laughs> There's no other way. Because they're not going to let me leave this island. Peace, motherfuckers. I'm done. Yeah, like, I, yeah, I mean, he, he knows either. Uh, he's getting taken either by a marine bullet or by his own hand. So he's like, might as well be by my own hand. So exactly. that's just. He uh, wants to have that, a say in it. Yeah, that's just the state that, you know, some soldiers are, are called into at uh, some points in history. But uh, so uh, Marine firepower uh, once more had won out against the superior Japanese numbers. So and uh, also of note, uh, Vandegrift had his kind of very risky cordon style uh, defense, but it ended up paying off uh, at this point. I think largely due to that superior firepower we talked about. If you didn't have those types of weapons, the canister shot, the machine guns, the artillery, very importantly, the artillery. Uh, then I, I don't know that his numbers would have won out against uh, against the Japanese. So, 
Uh, also of note was the Cactus Air Force. So uh, September 27th through October 27th, so about a month, the Cactus Air Force managed to shoot down 131 Japanese planes. And I also forgot to mention this as well earlier when I was talking about the Air Force. So to give you an idea about kind of the state of the Japanese Air Force as far as pilots were concerned, uh, there were about 767 uh, aviators at the time of Pearl Harbor. Uh, or, or the, I'm sorry, there were presidents of the Pearl Harbor attack, not in the entire Japanese Air Force. But out of those 767 men, uh, only 409 remained uh, at this point in the Battle of Gu- after this battle in Guadalcanal, which should just give you an idea about you know how 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 bad their casualties have been. So man, that that pilot experience is really playing a major like effect here. Just they have how many planes did the U.S. have on Guadalcanal? Uh, I I can't say that off the top of my head. It's maybe it's it's not a lot, I and mean, not much. It's probably I'd say at this point under two hundred, maybe under one hundred and fifty. But, but still, uh, the fact that they're having like that much of a success rate in in not just dogfights, but even against bombers and and ignoring zeros half the time, that's it's incredible. Yeah, I mean, you, you, I mean, I think you really got to think about the fact that you know these you know, American pilots, you know, are there every single day, you know, they're constantly fighting wave after off wave after wave with Japanese pilots. So they're building up the experience really fast. Whereas all these Japanese pilots may be sent in from other areas, you know, to replace the ones that they've lost. So it could be, you could have, you know, you could easily have, you know, a Marine aviator that's, you know, maybe, you know, killed, you know, like 10 Japanese pilots shot at a couple bombers coming face to face with a completely green uh, Japanese pilot. I mean, and, and, and the Japanese, I mean, the the zero was a very good plane, you know, at this point still, but that doesn't do shit if you don't know how to use it. So, and um, you know, later on in the war, you know, the Battle of the Philippine Sea. I mean, you, you'll see just kind of what kind of effect the uh, the lack of experience some of the uh, the Japanese uh, aviators had just would have on certain battles. But uh, so to kind of end out this episode, I'm going to briefly go over the Battle of Santa Cruz Islands. So uh, from October 25th through the 27th, the U.S. and the Japanese uh, fleets fought this battle uh, right off Santa Cruz. I, I know, shocker. Uh, battle of Santa Cruz Islands off, 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 off of Santa Cruz. But uh, so in this battle, the Japanese managed to win a technical victory. Uh, they didn't lose any ships in this battle, whereas the, uh, the U.S. lost uh, the aircraft carrier Hornets and they lost one destroyer along with 81 aircraft destroyed. So the U.S. only lost uh, two. Or, uh, at this point, the U.S. had only two carriers left to defend the Solomons. Uh, those were the Enterprise and the Saratoga. Uh, however, though, the Japanese lost 99 aircraft in the cruise, which was, like I said earlier, it, that's, that's going to be a loss. It's really going to stink for them, and it's a loss that it's going to take them much longer to actually regain those lost pilots. So Yeah, and then, exactly. Uh, I mean, they can rebuild the planes, but that is a hefty body count of, of pilots that even if they like manage to recover half, uh, let's say that's like the best case. That is just a major chunk of their piloting core gone. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and while this was a this battle was a tactical victory for the Japanese, it was more of a strategic victory for the United States because it managed to actually keep the Japanese uh, away from Guadalcanal and away from bombing Henderson Field further. Uh, moreover, uh, the Japanese. Uh, uh, the two of their carriers suffered enough damage to actually take them back to Japan for repairs, uh, removing them from the theater. And of course, the Americans are going to be able to 
eventually, you know, those those carriers that they're going to lose, like the Lost Hornet, they're going to eventually be able to replace those carriers. And whereas the Japanese are not, and it's going to take them, those carriers that they did manage to repair, it's going to take them a lot longer because their infrastructure just simply doesn't allow them to repair as fast as the United States. But, uh, and then uh, also Japan is a, is a really, really fucking far from Guadalcanal too. So there's also that. <laughs> and then, uh, so this is pretty much the, uh, so yeah, that kind of ends this episode. So we went ahead and had a massive climactic battle at Hanson Field. We had a naval battle as well. And uh, going to the next episode, the Japanese are going to be uh, it's, we'll talk about the aftermath of that battle and what kind of steps the uh, United States are going to take to exploit that victory. So, so what did you think of this battle overall? I mean, it really kind of felt like the Japanese threw themselves into a, a hail of bullets just Absolutely. based on malaria-ridden chaos and their own brave stupidity. Absolutely. It's, it's just, I mean, you, they really did just, in this episode, you feel like they just flew themselves into a wood chipper. And, and that's not to say these commanders, of course, you know, weren't competent. I mean, there were, there were several commanders that were, Japanese commanders that were very competent, but you just, you can't, when you have, you know, we, when you like the kind of fire, firepower that the Marines have at this point, you just simply, and you're a small island nation that has a smaller population, you just simply cannot afford to just throw your men at these positions, these fixed, you know, machine gun emplacements with, with artillery and anti-tank guns and grenades. You just can't, you can't do it. You can't do that willy-nilly. You have to come up with some either some better maneuvers, catch them off guard, or you need to, you know, maybe re- readjust your priorities and maybe try to adopt a move more of a defensive strategy, which is what we're going to see later on in the war. Uh, but... Yeah, it's a uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty pretty terrible overall. A lot of a lot of fucking men getting blown to bits. War is great, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, famously, uh, war is uh is 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 the best thing ever. Never did anything bad to anybody ever. <laughs> but and with that, I think we'll go we'll go ahead and sign off. Uh, thanks so much for tuning in again, guys. Uh, this series will be concluded. Next week, the fifth installment of the series, the Guadalcanal Campaign, uh, go ahead and look up the Patreon. If you go ahead and donate only $3 a month, you can go ahead and uh, get access to bonus content as well, well as the Discord. Go ahead and join the COD Squad, and uh, go ahead and tune in next Tuesday. And then um, yeah, we're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you find your podcasts. So, uh, yeah, don't uh, until next time, don't run into any machine gun placements. That usually doesn't turn out very well. Yeah, no, don't uh, don't charge your local military base or anything like that. That's normally nowadays real fine machine gun emplacement. So uh, don't recommend it. Ain't fun. <laughs> yeah, that's that's generally considered to be kind of frowned upon in in modern society. I, I would say. How dare they? <laughs> I know, right? What man, really, really? This this country just has gone to shit or has it? You know, you can't yeah, exactly. even charge a. Charge a military base with anymore. Back, what the fuck? Back in my day, I could have run <laughs> headlong in a machine gun nest and been perfectly fine. Yeah, no, no way would have blinked an eye. That that's just an average Tuesday for me and the boys. You know, you're down a couple of beers, you charge them in the National Guard base. You know, you you, you hijack the tank on meth like that one guy in California. Like, it's, yeah, exactly. You have a good time. All right, take care, guys. <laughs> Bye, everyone. <laughs>